The Iraq War famously is a result of lies. Wars in Somalia are a result of lies. The Second World War and the German invasion of Poland was a result of carefully constructed lies. That is war by media. Let us ask ourselves of the complicit media, which is the majority of the mainstream press, what is the average death count attributed to each journalist? Okay, that was, of course, Anton Karras from The Third Man. And up front, it was Julian Assange. I think it was 2010. It was at an anti-war demonstration, and I don't know where. Uh, this is Randy Credico, Randy Credico Live on the Fly. This is Assange Countdown to Freedom. It's a special show. This is our 14th episode this year, but this is a special show because today is the one-year anniversary uh, of Julian Assange being booted out, dragged out of that uh, embassy in London and taken to Balmorish, where he's been for the last year under the harshest conditions. So we really have a, a packed show today. We have Anya Perenpil from Grey Zone News. We have Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst and a journalist from Buenos Aires, Sergio Kiernan, who works with Pahina Dose as an editor and a, an investigative journalist. All right, let me tell you, this has been a complicated show today, and it is a complicated show. First of all, the sound files, like the one you heard at the top, were made by my good friends at uh, Anonymous Scandinavia. So I get the files from them. Then I place them between interviews, and it's recorded through Zoom, out of North Carolina by my good friend Kelly Lane, who has been a longtime Assange supporter. And then they're sent to Lake Arrowhead, California, where I, I grew up somewhere nearby and spent a lot of vacation time up there when I was a kid. And uh, they're edited by uh, uh, Jimmy Sunderland, and she does a fabulous job. So this is her second week doing that. Um, I want to begin by just playing uh, a little, a little um, a clip, because it was three years ago this week, I think it, today, that I interviewed Julian Assange, and we kicked off this uh, series called Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, this is just a little pastiche from that interview. A lot of people really don't understand why you are there, what did you do to be there and be a political prisoner inside that embassy? Well, it's interesting. Uh, do you need to do something in order to have, uh, in order, order to have a kind of modern interstate system uh, make life very difficult for you uh, and detain you without charge, in my case, for seven years? Uh, 
I'm not sure you do. Uh, that's part of the problem when justice becomes arbitrary. Uh, the system doesn't just strike out uh, at its critics. Uh, the institutions that comprise it are also fearsomely stupid, uh, especially where uh, they're engaged in secrecy because um, excellence is not uh, promoted by secrecy because poor work uh, can be covered up or uh, poorly performing contractors um, are not favoured over uh, under uh, uh, contractors that perform well. So I'm not sure you, you do actually need to do anything wrong. The system can just come down uh, on your head uh, and you can, be, you can be swept up in it for decades. In my particular case, of course, uh, I um, have rather specialised in my life since being a young teenager in provoking the hell out of it. Uh, so, so I do kind of under, understand that it's, in that sense, uh, it's to be expected in the sort of world that I am living in, which is uh, exposing these large and powerful organisations. And of course, by, by definition, if they're large and powerful, they have an ability to uh, suppress their critics in one way or another. So... You can get all of those interviews with Assange at our website that Sarah Kunstler uh, is uh, building. We have one now, but we're building a whole new site, and that's AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. Her father, by the way, William Kunstler, I play this quite often because I think it's appropriate uh, in terms of this uh, persecution, this Kafkaesque persecution, uh, prosecution of Julian Assange. Let me just get to it right now. Uh, This is Bill Kunstler right after the Chicago uh, 7, Chicago 8 trial. Listen to this. And that's the terrible myth of organized society, that everything that's done through the established system is legal, and that word has a powerful psychological impact. It makes people believe that there is an order to life and an order to a system, and that a person that goes through this order and is convicted has gotten all that is due him, and therefore society can turn its conscience off and look to other things and other times. And that's the terrible thing about these past trials, is that they have this aura of legitimacy, this aura of legality. I suspect that better men than the world has known and more of them have gone to their deaths through a legal system than through all the illegalities in the history of man. Six million people in Europe during the Third Reich, legal. Sacco Vanzetti, quite legal. The Haymarket defendants, legal. The hundreds of rape trials throughout the South where black men were condemned to death, all legal. Jesus, legal. Socrates, legal. And that is the kaleidoscopic nature 
of what we live through here and in other places. Because all tyrants learn that it is far better to do this thing through some semblance of legality than to do it without that pretense. Quite powerful. We'll ask Ray McGovern about that. He's listening right now, and he'll be on later on. Um, so this is it. Um, we have, like I said, a big show. It's Paul Robeson's birthday. Actually, it was yesterday or the day before. It was April 9th, born April 9th, 1898. Uh, so we're going to play a lot of Paul Robeson, as we did for Cornell West. And uh, we'll be right back with... Anya Perimpil. And I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed they framed you on a murder charge says joe but i ain't dead says joe but i ain't dead and standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes says joe what they can never kill went on to organize went on to organize okay uh this is uh randy credico uh this is uh randy credico live on the fly assigns countdown to freedom and our first guest is a powerful guest uh a great journalist um she is um one of the um contributors actually she's like one of the main people at the Gray Zone uh, News, uh, the Gray Zone Project, Gray Zone News, uh, formerly from uh, RT. I met her at RT in uh, Washington, D.C. We actually had a few interviews on Julian Assange. And most recently, she hosted a panel here in New York City at uh, City Law School in Queens uh, with an incredible uh, cast of characters. And she did an incredible job. I sound like Trump saying incredible <laughs> in five minutes. Unbelievable. There you go. One of his superlatives. Unbelievable. All right. Stupendous. You're so uh, sweet. Frankly. Um, so, but this is all free form. We are free forming it. This is not like uh, a typical interview where, you know, it's one of those 60 minute deals. <laughs> I'm just having a good time today, even though it's a very serious matter. This Two is friends having a chat. Yes. This is like we're on the phone with each other, right? Yeah, social distancing. Right. We're, we're, this is like um, at, at that, uh, the last time I had dinner out was with you and Max and Ben Norton and Aaron Mate at that Greek place on Atlantic Avenue. I haven't been out since, except That's for in London. Me. Except for in London. London, it was difficult not to go out. I imagine so. Yeah, especially when you're hanging out with Craig Murray. <laughs> can imagine. Well, uh, Anya Parampil <laughs> is um, with the Gray Zone. And you, I got to tell you, you have a, a, like these credentials. You've been down to Venezuela many times. You've been to the Gaza Strip. You've been to Israel. Uh, you've been around the world. You haven't been to Bolivia though, right? 
I have not been to Bolivia. It's on my list, yeah. my wish list. But you've reported in, in some very difficult hot spots and um, that's what makes you so unique. There are very few people that do what you do. Your reporting is, is really uh, admirable. Uh, it's groundbreaking. Kind, Randy. Kind. Well, I, even you know your your, your tweets. I, I I follow you on Twitter. Your tweets, uh, you know, which get like a million retweets. That's more than your 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 compatriots at Gray Zone. I mean, nobody gets as much no, attention as you. You know, that includes Max. And by that's the way, I don't. A little generous. Let me ask a question. You go by your last name, so you're not Mrs. Blumenthal. No, no, I did not change my name. But I, I, it didn't I, I really work. It wouldn't have sounded right. No, it doesn't. Now Anya Blumenthal, just, just not there. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It was Blair Blumenthal. Pass. Blair Blumenthal. So, um, getting back, this is the, this is the um, one-year anniversary of uh, Julian Assange being arrested uh, and uh, put on trial in London, and possibly. Uh, extradited. Uh, when you first saw that, what was your reaction a year ago today? Uh, I knew where I was when that happened. Uh, and I remember my response. I was sick when I saw it. What was your response? Very similar to yours, Randy. I was at home working and I saw the images that everyone did of Assange being dragged out of the embassy in London, shouting and, and looking very unwell. My heart sank and I was sick and angry and completely disgusted. And it's been a year since he was arrested, but before then he'd already been under a different kind of psychological and physical imprisonment. A really unprecedented campaign was waged on a global scale against Julian Assange's freedom. And I think it's really important that while we're all at home, or supposed to be at least, under quarantine and thinking about how stir crazy we may be going in our homes and apartments to consider the plight of Julian because this is someone who has been kept in solitary confinement. This is someone who has been left to suffer and his health is in serious decline. It's if, if we can only stand a few weeks or days of imprisonment in our own homes. Imagine someone like Julian Assange going through years of unjust imprisonment in the embassy, in now Belmarsh prison, and think of how we would handle that situation. And it's, it's presenting the perfect opportunity to discuss Assange's case because it's, as his mother said, I think I saw a tweet from Christine Assange. She said, if COVID lockdown claustrophobia is getting you down, think about my son. He's been detained for years without a charge, seven years without any fresh air, exercise. And then he was spied on even when he wanted to ride a little skateboard around the embassy in London. He spent two years in solitary confinement. And now he's in an, a prison. He's in a prison infected with coronavirus. You mentioned Craig Murray, Randy, and I was just reading a report he filed recently. He's, of course, we all know, provided excellent coverage of the trial and the persecution of Julian Assange, who's a former British diplomat. And he discussed 
the judge's decision, Judge Vanessa Barrister, to dismiss the defenses, the, the defense of Julian Assange's request to postpone the extradition hearing because the, the defense said that, first of all, Julian is too ill to even pre prepare his defense. He can't access his lawyers due to this lockdown of, caused by COVID-19. Witnesses will not be able to testify because of travel restrictions and the lockdown. And Murray also points out that treatment for Assange's mental health has ceased due to COVID-19. I would encourage everyone to read his report. It was republished at Consortium News, also published on his website. It's really terrifying, Randy, because now Assange is in a position where not only is he going through the mental stress and the physical stress that we can now maybe relate to as we go under quarantine, he's even in more danger because he suffers from a lung condition, a chronic lung condition. And so as COVID-19 spreads through the jails, he is an at-risk prisoner and he's never been charged with a violent crime. He poses no threat to the public. He's in been fact, charged with one thing. He's been charged with jumping bail. bail. Exactly. For, for, for he, was, he was out on bail for a crime that was non-existent that there was never any charge exactly. just for an investigation. And they won't release him let, or even let alone postpone his trial. Yes. I, I read, I read Craig Murray's story and it's also on Craig Murray.org.uk. Uh, Craig Murray. I sat next to him throughout that, um, that uh, proceeding uh, back in February and he came out with stuff every single day. I mean, he, he was, I'll tell you, he really was, I'll use another Trump word, amazing. All right, the fact that he would afterwards uh, be up late and then write a story, have it published, come back, because we had to be in the queue at 5.30 in the morning just to get into that trial. So we had people that were substituting for us, but we had to be there by 5.30 or six o'clock in the morning and the proceedings didn't start until 9.30 or 10. But uh, he's indefatigable. And his, he, you go back and look at all of Craig Murray's very trenchant analysis of the way the proceedings were uh, were being held by this woman. It's really scary um, when, when you look at it. As a journalist yourself, as a journalist, uh, what is the import of what's happening uh, to Julian Assange, to people like you and others who are, who are similar uh, to uh, Julian, where you go out there and you report on real news? People like me, and people around the world who even aren't journalists are internally, eternally indebted to Assange for the publishing that WikiLeaks has provided over the years. I always say, and, and so does Max Blumenthal, the editor at large of The Gray Zone, he, that whenever we publish reports, whether it's about the Middle East or Latin America, we always find it useful to do a scan of WikiLeaks publications and files on the individuals and topics, specific issues that we're covering, countries that we're covering. And there's sometimes very relevant information that people have really yet to discover yet, but it's a permanent cache of documents that people like me or academics can use forever to 
search and find pertinent information that make all of our stories more interesting. If you look at the Gray Zone website and do a search of WikiLeaks, you'll find so many articles about a variety of topics, whether it's Syria, whether it's Ecuador, the corruption, for example, of the president, Lenin Moreno, who was exposed through a WikiLeaks publication, the INA files you may remember several um, months ago, exposing the fact that President Moreno had these offshore accounts and a whole host of stories. You'll find about a variety of topics all tie back to WikiLeaks because of the sacrifice Julian Assange has made, which is really a sacrifice of his life. We see at that point, not this point, not only his freedom, but potentially his, his very living being. He's put his body on the line. He's done more than anyone in, in modern history I can really think of to protect the concept of free, a free press and true reporting that's more than just stringing together hot takes from your apartment in Brooklyn. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I was talking to a guy who will be interviewing later on, uh, Sergio Kiernan from Pajina Dose in Argentina. And uh, those cable leaks from, I don't know, six or seven years ago were very, very important to journalists down in, in Argentina that expose uh, the last president, uh, Macri, in mm -hmm. a, a series of corruption uh, incidents and corruption all over the world. Uh, leaders are afraid of him. Leaders, not just the U.S., not just the U.K., not just the former uh, head of, um, of um, the president of Argentina, Macri, but also Lyndon Moreno. None of these people want Julian Assange operating. What is your sense over that? We should note also that Assange was pushed out. The, the, the inviolability of Ecuador's embassy in London was violated by British forces, thanks to the permission of President Moreno, who had been exposed, or WikiLeaks had exposed through its reporting. So that reporting, some say, is what led Moreno to finally allow foreign authorities to enter his sovereign embassy in London and detain Julian Assange one year ago. So we should we should keep that in mind as well. They they actually retaliated against him. And it's true what you say, Randy, that leaders around the world fear him, and that's for good reason, because Assange really and WikiLeaks did inspire, for example, massive uprisings in Tunisia, which was dubbed even by mainstream media in 2011 to have experienced a WikiLeaks revolution because the State Department's cables published by WikiLeaks confirmed what so many Tunisians had known for so long that the decades-long leader Ben Ali and his family had led very corrupt lives and were profiting from their position high in the state. That led to massive upheaval and an actual revolution which changed the history of Tunisia forever. And so it really can't be understated, Julian Assange's role, WikiLeaks's role in world history, in shaping world events. And just to underscore the importance of Assange's work to people 
all around the world. I, I would just want to bring up an interview I did last year with the former president of Honduras, Jose Manuel Zelaya, who was removed from his elected position as the president of Honduras in 2009 in a U.S.-backed coup. Soldiers invaded his home, put him on a plane and abandoned him, dropped him on the tarmac in Costa Rica and installed a U.S. friendly government, which now we see has led to the presidency of Juan Orlando Hernandez, the current president, who's someone who's been linked to drug the drug trade. His brother was even found guilty last year in a multi-million dollar drug and gun running case in a New York court. And the president was actually named as a co-conspirator in that case, someone who funded his campaigns with drug money, someone who's serving an illegitimate second term in Honduras, something that's banned by their country's constitution. I'm going off on a tangent, but that's just to set the stage for why I think it's so important what Manuel Zelaya told me. Again, this is the leader who was removed in a U.S.-backed coup. By Hillary Clinton was involved. By Hillary Clinton, right? precisely, yes. She was Secretary of State. How many people died uh, subsequent to that coup? Dozens, at least dozens of human rights activists, including Berta Cáceres, who we all know as someone who became kind of a symbol of, of the, the deadly impact of that coup. She was someone who worked to preserve land and protect uh, the rights of indigenous people in Honduras. And she was murdered by a hit squad that gunned her down in her own home. I believe it was in 2013 or 2015. But after the removal of Jose Manuel Zelaya, Honduras did become, according to international organizations, one of the most deadly places on earth for human rights activists and environmental activists. And when I spoke with Manuel Zelaya last year on the 10th year anniversary of that coup, I asked him about the significance of WikiLeaks in Honduras, but also the region. And I'll read you exactly what he said to me because I think it captures oh, good, good. the spirit of Assange very well. He said, Julian Assange is a symbol of freedom in the world today, tomorrow, and forever. He will be one of the people in the future, like one of the great prophets. In their day, they were repressed, and later they become a symbol. That is what Julian Assange will become. Julian Assange proclaimed a world without secrets, an open world, a free world. Of course, he affects the powerful interests of today. But in the future, I and others and other generations will follow the example of Assange. Wow, that's pretty heavy. How, how do people get uh, access to I've seen I've seen the interview. It's really, uh, uh, it's stunning. I mean, I couldn't believe uh, that you got this interview and he was so frank with you. Um, wh where do people uh, gain access to that uh, interview? There's the graysone.com. You can search for it there and their Gray Zone YouTube channel. Okay, it's really great. Uh, you know, I, I look at you, you, you were there. I remember 2017 when you first interviewed me. Uh, you're one of the, I mean, RT, RT back then, and they, they still do, one of the few outlets in this country that will give an honest uh, analysis of Julian Assange and the great work that he's done. Uh, they give you a fair and balanced one. You don't, you don't see that. How appalling is it to you? Do you see it anywhere else? Let me just cut to the chase. Anywhere else in mainstream media where Julian Assange is given a fair shake? I would have to say, in all honesty, the only place that I've seen 
provide Assange with an honest shake or give his trial any coverage was Tucker Carlson on Fox News. He hosted Roger Waters. The I saw that. Did you arrange that? Did you arrange that meet that that interview? No comment. <laughs> no, that was a great interview. That's true. He does. He he has. Uh, it's true. I must say, I'm not a big fan of Tucker Carlson, but on this on this subject, he's been absolutely wonderful. But the more important point to make, rather than uh, focus on even where he has been given attention, is to call out the people who have not spoken up for yes. Assange, especially all those Beltway hack reporters. I can't stand, for example. Mention their names, please. We're having I'm a- I'm gonna say Jim Acosta, and I know what you're gonna say, Randy. What do you call him, Mr. Mannequin or something like that? Yes, he broke out of uh, Saks Fifth Avenue at one of those. Uh, <laughs> He, he and the guy, Jim Kyoto, <laughs> you never see them in the same picture together. They're well, the same guy. Jim Shudo is a pretty shady character for many reasons, but we can get in that, into that conversation another time. I just find it outrageous that people come to the defense of Jim Acosta because Trump mocks him during press conferences when Acosta kind of baits him. Yeah, baits him completely. They, it's a dynamic they both enjoy. And then we're supposed to say that Trump is like a fascist who hates the press and has done everything to curb press freedom if he says something mean to the reporters in the White House press pool. When they won't say anything about the Trump administration's prosecution or persecution of Julian Assange. He and won't even call him a, 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 a journalist. I'm talking about Jim Acosta. And no. Jim Acosta is not a journalist to begin with, so he would know. So he wouldn't know a journalist since he's not one himself. Right? It would be difficult for him to figure, figure out. I think, I don't know what what Jim Acosta's standards for journalism are other than just kind of acting like a, like a prick. I don't know what I'm allowed to say. What about, Ken, you can say whatever you want because uh, this is not live radio. What about uh, Ken Delanian? I don't follow him as closely, but he was really vocal over Russiagate, right? And anti-Assange as well. Yeah, these are the people who try to say that Assange is a Russian asset. And I, I can, I honestly lose track of them, kind of the way you said Jim Acosta and Jim Shudo have never been in the same place. There are all of these mainstream media bots that I kind of all just blend into one because they, they all just repeat the same talking points and they're a big echo chamber. Really, for why do we let me ask? Why do we watch them? Why do people, since not that many people watch MSNBC or CNN, there are three hundred million people that don't watch them. Should we just like ignore them instead of getting mad, or do they actually have that much influence on public opinion? I think they do play a role in shaping and forming public opinion. I think, for example, the endless coverage CNN gave Donald Trump in twenty sixteen did contribute to his win even if they thought they were giving him negative coverage they were giving him constant free advertising when they aired his speeches without any interruption and when they for example ignore bernie sanders the candidacy of sanders last round in 2016 and then this year vilified him constantly i do think it does play a role in shaping public opinion but i also the reason that I like to pay attention to the mainstream media is just to have an analysis of what it is our corporate masters want us to believe and where they're not doing their job. And then it gives 
reporters like me and my colleagues at the Gray Zone and at other alternative media outlets as well a template to respond and counter their narrative and fill in the gaps that they are overlooking because they're really doing a disservice to the public when they're spending more time trying to manipulate them into going to war with Venezuela, for example, than telling the truth about what's happening on the ground. Right. We, we are on the precipice of war in Venezuela, and you saw very few reporters do a follow-up when he had that press conference the other day uh, with Mike Esper and uh, and uh, William Barr about, uh, you know, boats and some Navy guy, boats going into the Gulf of Venezuela. How appalled uh, and, and how anxious were you when you saw that press conference? It was a pretty creepy press conference. You never like to see the military brass lined up in such a way and making a major announcement about maneuvers at sea, on land, or in the skies. And that's what we saw last week when the, the head of the Pentagon and the head of the military, Esper, announced that they were sending a ship through the Caribbean and towards Venezuela to engage in so-called anti-narcotics operations. This came just days after the U.S. Justice Department announced that it was charging Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and several other members of his cabinet with narco-trafficking, despite presenting zero evidence, in spite of the fact that the UN Drug Office tasked with combating narcotics production and transport has not named Venezuela in any of its recent reports. And in spite of the fact that we all know drugs are the majority of the world's co cocaine is produced through Colombia and transported to the United States through cartels, violent cartels in Central America, in US allied countries such as Honduras, which I already mentioned earlier, and then through Mexico, Venezuela. It doesn't make sense that cocaine would go back into Venezuela over the Colombian border and then for some reason go make that detour before heading through Central America and Mexico. It just doesn't add up. And that's what the ex-director, actually, of that UN drug office, Pino Arlaki, told me when I, when I interviewed him at the Gray Zone, that he said he was astounded that these charges came. But it set the stage for that military, that naval maneuver in the Caribbean. And I was concerned. It's, it's just I was especially concerned for my friends in Venezuela and asking them how they're doing, if they're they feel like they've been living under constant threat and in fear of a U.S. invasion for over a year now since the U.S. instigated this coup attempt led by Juan Guaido. Yeah, what a great guy, huh? Yeah, he's he comes, doing a comes job. the same same window that uh, that uh, Acosta and Skelton yes. from. I, you know, I I I, uh, I look at these charges against them made by the same Justice Department, by the same Attorney General who has filed charges against Julian Assange, mm -hmm. the, the charges against Nicolas Maduro. So uh, talk about that. It shows you the, well, we're not surprised to know that the Justice Department is just an extension of the U.S. national security state, what some call the deep state, and it's out there making absurd charges against the leader of a foreign, of a head of, a foreign head of state 
and trying to prosecute a journalist who was the greatest force in combating U.S. empire in recent history. I don't think there's any question that Julian Assange has contributed more than anyone of his peers uh, to the cause of exposing the wrongdoing and the evils and the abuse by US the U.S. military and State Department abroad. But on, on the question of, of Maduro, it's important to note that it, it felt as though the Justice Department was also setting the stage for a Panama-style military operation where they would go in and depose Maduro under the guise of combating the drug trade. The they did the same trade. thing with, with Noriega. It was the okay. same, same attorney general back then that gave them the cover, the rationale to go in there, the legal opinion to go into Panama and, and snatch a world leader. Precisely. I can tell you the main difference between the Panama situation and the Venezuela style, the Venezuela situation is that unlike Panama at that time, Venezuela has a very strong and independent sovereign, not only government, but military, and they will fight back. It won't be so easy to waltz into Miraflores Palace and kidnap President Maduro. There will be massive resistance from not only the Venezuelan military, but the organized colectivos around the country that exist in order to protect their sovereign and independent nation. And while right now I do believe the, the deployment of this ship to the Venezuela, Venezuelan coast or Venezuela, surrounding Venezuela is posturing, perhaps even partially designed to distract from the coronavirus crisis, not only within the United States, but that's really rocking the US military right now, including especially the Navy, where these ships have become clusters of coronavirus outbreaks. <laughs> I do think it's posturing, but posturing can be dangerous. And we already saw, and it got almost zero coverage. In fact, I think it did get zero coverage, Randy, that a week, around a week ago, just over a week ago, Strange reports surfaced in the Jerusalem Post describing an incident between a German cruise ship and a Venezuelan naval ship. I saw that. Wait a second. I saw your uh, your tweet on that where there was a collision. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yes. Well, it's, it's insane, really, that there was no follow-up to that because the original report didn't make sense. They said a German cruise ship had an exchange with the Venezuelan naval ship. The Venezuelan naval ship, for some reason, fired on this cruise ship before the Venezuelan ship sunk. Didn't really make sense. I followed the information released by the Venezuelan armed forces, which initially claimed that their ship had encountered the other vessel, which is actually a German cruise ship, which was flying under a Portuguese flag, that they'd asked it to dock because it had come into Venezuelan waters, unauthorized. That was asked to dock at an island, Margarita Island, which is a beautiful vacation destination, actually, where I've spent some time in Venezuela. But it was asked to stop there for inspection and then refused. It then the Venezuelan army com military complained or claimed rather that at that point 
instead of complying with orders, the massive German cruise ship rammed in to the Venezuelan boat and sunk it. And then sure enough, within days, Venezuela's military actually produced video of the incident. And it's super creepy because you can see a huge, this was just a small kind of patrol boat that the Venezuelans were operating. And this was a huge, massive cruise ship with, get this, no passengers on board, only a crew. And they had an audio exchange, which I tweeted, which confirms the story the Venezuelan military told. They'd asked this ship to dock at Margarita Island. And then the next thing you know, you hear the Venezuelan boat getting rocked and before the audio cuts. And they also showed video of this massive ship. It was a ship, a cruise ship, Randy, meant for the Arctic. So it had this huge hub meant to cut through ice. Wow. And they just, no ice left, though. You don't need one of those kind of through. ships. But they hit the Venezuelan ship, sunk it, left the soldier, sailors in the water. They were fortunately rescued, and so there were no casualties. However, the, the cruise ship just went along on its way, and it had initially told the Venezuelan military that its destination was a cluster of islands, which are just off the coast of Venezuela, but are actually controlled by the Dutch, so it would be, in effect, NATO-controlled territory off the coast of Venezuela. Why was a cruise ship, by the way, nobody's going on cruises right now. I know. Why was a cruise I don't ship know. It sounds like Arctic a very provocative there. incident that was uh, somehow initiated by those who like uh, conflict. Uh, what is Why didn't they want to be inspected is another question. What did they have on board, perhaps? Maybe they're the drug dealers. Well, Maybe they're the ones bringing more. drugs in from Colombia. Worth you know, asking the question. Maybe they were going to plant some drugs in, in Venezuela. Uh, Arms, you know, mercenaries, any mercenaries. of these things. Well, we, we, that's what's great about the gray zone. You're not going to see this anywhere else. Julian Assange is, uh, is uh, you know, out of his hamstrung. He can't uh, operate. Do you think people um, are, are nervous about sending stuff to WikiLeaks because uh, Assange is not there running the operation. I mean, you can still get stuff in there. The, the mechanism still works, but by him being on trial, do you think that, that uh, people who would like to leak are a little nervous? They're kind of neutralized by the fact that Assange is on trial? Of course. That's part of the reason the United States is prosecuting and persecuting Assange in such an unjust manner. It's to make an example out of him to discourage future whistleblowers from stepping forward and to discourage journalists from doing the time-honored duty of publishing information, publishing leaks and documents. Journalism as a profession wouldn't really exist without that right. And so the treatment of Assange, the treatment of Chelsea Manning, the whistleblower who supplied WikiLeaks with some of the most infamous documents and video leaks to come for the organization, the way she's been treated now, held in solitary confinement in U.S. prison for her refusal to testify against Assange. I believe she recently attempted suicide in prison. So this is someone who spent years in solitary confinement in 
prison under conditions which the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture said constituted torture was prosecuted, but then released by the Obama administration and then found herself back behind bars and could have easily, if she wanted to, agreed to the U.S. government's demands and been set free, yet is so committed to her principles. Oh, and- man, she has integrity, you know, like, uh, you know, like there's no way, really, I've never More seen- More than many of us. I, I know. I mean, to spend a year, I don't know. Look, you you spoke, and I wanted to bring this up. You spoke earlier about being uh, holed up in, in a room. I mean, I, I go, I can go out with a mask on, uh, you know, and walk, in, you know, in, in a pretty close perimeter to where I am uh, and, and not, uh, you know, I can do that. But there's, nothing's open. And I don't do it. I don't do it that often. But the fact is I'm, uh, I'm inside like 23 hours a day, it seems like. It is an inconvenience. It, it is difficult to, to adjust to. But when you mentioned it, and I forgot to bring it up, when you mentioned that, that he has done that for seven years. And then Chelsea has been in a horrible situation for the past year. Uh, you know, it's, it's really hard. I can't deal with this. This is difficult. And most people, uh, you know, most uh, middle class or privileged people, they can't deal with it at all. You know, they're going crazy. They're going stir crazy. Uh, they're having cabin fever. It, it takes a special individual. And we got two here talking about Julian Assange and Chelsea Manny to undergo it and maintain their principles. Mm-hmm. It should be an inspiration to us all. Right. Uh, well, I'm, I'm inspired to stay inside to do interviews about it, but I certainly would like to get outside once in a while. But where am I going to go? There's nothing open, you know. And, yes, in New York, best, best to maybe take a walk around the block and, and you, fresh air, but you don't want to go too far. And, and, you, and you've done reporting. Uh, you've been uh, to Gaza. I want to talk about Gaza because you know, I've, been, I've been communicating with people there. Um, and uh, on, on Facebook who, who live there and are living in a terrible situation. Uh, I don't think people appreciate how bad uh, their conditions are and what they've undergone, and nobody reports on that. You've given them voice. You and Max went over there, uh, spent some time, and you've been a, a very vocal supporter of, of the Palestinian people in occupied Gaza. You want to talk about that for a few minutes? Absolutely. I was in Gaza with Max in February 2017, I want to say. Maybe it was 20. Sounds about right. But when I was there in Gaza at the time, they were already experiencing a medical and health crisis due to the Israeli siege and blockade. People might not realize that Palestinians in Gaza are not allowed to travel by land outside of the Strip, which is the most densely populated piece of land on Earth. But they're also not allowed to go beyond a certain perimeter, even within the sea. Fishermen are shot on a regular basis for violating Israel's invisible fence in the ocean that doesn't even allow them to seek freedom or travel through through the sea. It, it's 
it's literally a prison, just a massive warehouse for an excess population that Israel doesn't want to deal with. I, wait, I, I can see that from here, but you actually were yeah. there, so it, it, it's it's more vivid. I mean, yeah. you had you had your your you envisioned what it was like, mm -hmm. but to be there, what is it? Does it like open up a whole new yeah. uh, viewpoint? That's that's what I wanted to to mention was I saw firsthand the experience of I believe it was Al Shifa Hospital, which at the time was experiencing such drastic cuts to their funding uh, due to a decision made by the Palestinian Authority over in the West Bank that the hospital staff was on strike. And they also just weren't being, they aren't supplied with basic medical equipment there. And so I was standing in a hospital and this report should still be on RT America's YouTube channel where medical waste bags of blood and things you would never expect to see in a hospital were piling up uh, because of the lack of supplies, the lack of, they were having electricity cuts. Israel bombed Gaza's electricity plants. Perhaps I think it was during the 2008, 2009 war. And so the entire strip is experiencing constant rolling energy, electricity cuts. Uh, they were only able to really power their, elec their, their electricity thanks to fuel donations from outside. And I also met with people who had lost loved ones while I was there. A report had just come out documenting uh, several cases, several dozen cases in just one year of Palestinians dying because they were in Gaza and were denied the permission to travel and seek treatment for basic illnesses and cancer in the West Bank to, in order to get from the Gaza Strip to some of the more advanced Palestinian hospitals in the West Bank, someone in Gaza has to receive permission from the Israeli government to exit. And so the Israeli government routinely denies that permission. And so people can't get out of the Strip and just receive basic medical care. And meanwhile, the hospitals in Gaza are experiencing shortages and, and destitution on the level which I've just described to you. So people who are sick can't really receive proper medical care in Gaza. There's a, a complete siege, a medieval style siege, uh, implemented by the Israelis over Gaza. And so they, that, that, that is designed to destroy their healthcare system the same way sanctions are designed to destroy Iran's healthcare system or Venezuela's medical system. And pretty, it's pretty satanic. What, what we and see so now with the outbreak of coronavirus, it will only get worse. Well, you know, it's, it's pretty satanic and, and demented what's going mm -hmm. on. Our State Department and, uh, you know, these sanctions everywhere and our support uh, for the actions of Netanyahu uh, by this, uh, this government. Um, you know, what we see every day here in New York right now in these hospitals in Elmhurst and every place else. I mean, I can't, if I broke a leg, I, I'd have to try to fix it myself at this point. This is yeah. something that, that we, it's an ephemeral thing here. Uh, it's difficult to swallow, but this is something that, that Palestinians in, in Gaza like have to experience every day. 
Yes, I believe the last statistic I saw was that 80 to 90 percent of the ventilators in the West Bank and Gaza are already in use, according to the World Health Organization. So imagine the panic in New York City that you've experienced now compounded. There's nothing, there's no comparison even really between what New Yorkers and the people in Gaza are experiencing. If you can imagine it being even worse uh, with, we saw how Governor Cuomo reacted so strongly to the Trump administration's refusal to provide him with the equipment he wanted. Well, I, I can't come up with a mathematical equation on the spot, but I think we'd have to multiply that experience by several times in order to get a picture of what the people of especially Gaza, but the West Bank as well, the Palestinian people as a whole have been experiencing for decades. And I think the most important point to make, and this is a point that I make to people whenever I go around the United States to speak, or when I'm in countries around the world, like Venezuela or Syria or Palestine, I say the average people in the United States, the average people in New York City who are suffering from the elite unwillingness in this country to provide basic goods and medical services to its people, the people here have more in common with the people of Palestine, the people of Venezuela, and the people who are under siege from the U.S. government than we do with the elites who are in the Trump administration, who were in the Obama administration, and will continue to serve in U.S. administrations until we say that those people are our common enemy and they really see all of us as Palestinians. They would like to keep all of us in, in cages and treat us like excess humanity. What else would you call US inner cities that have been completely cut off or where they cut funding to the schools and where they don't build grocery stores and where there's a heavily militarized police force? It's the same project that the US and its allies, repressive project that the US and its allies institutes abroad. It's, it's, it's also what they do to us here. And so that's why, yeah, you're right, Randy, people in New York right now who are seeing how little their government cares for them can perhaps have now stronger solidarity for the struggle of the Palestinian people who have been faced with such treatment for yes. decades. You know, it's, it's like Governor Cuomo, who suddenly is a big hero, even though he waited two months to uh, get into this and has thrown the homeless under the bus, he has thrown uh, people behind bars, the 51,000 people in the uh, prisons, 37 of the 51 prisons his father built, uh, and he's keeping them full. He wow. doesn't do any furloughs. Uh, we have 700 cases at Rikers. He's done nothing about that. He just throws them overboard like uh, slave traders would throw off human cargo uh, if they ran out of fresh water, just throw them into the ocean. He doesn't care about them. And, you know, white people now a privilege look at Andrew Cuomo as if he's some hero because a fire that he helped light uh, he's like, like, he's not putting it out because it's, it's already played out. It got, it got too, you know, got too big to fire, like ran from, from Buffalo all the way down to Long Island. Uh, but he's, he's received, he's looked at as some kind of hero, even though 
He's against the BDS movement. He's the one that proposed uh, the um, legislation against the, the BDS movement in this state. He's the one that went to Israel in 2014, 2014, and looked at the caves and, and sat there with Netanyahu. But as I said on Democracy Now! back then, when I liked Democracy Now!, <laughs> I, said, I said that he, didn't, he visited the caves, but not the graves in, in Gaza. Uh, after the hospitals were being bombed. He went there, he's a political animal, and he doesn't care about these people in prison right now. What is your view, just quickly, because I want to talk about uh, some closing remarks about Assange, about the way Andrew Cuomo is being heralded as some kind of uh, knight on a white horse. I think we should be worried that this could turn into something more serious, because the way he's kind of being heralded in the media right now makes me feel as though the, the elites, the corporate powers that control our media want us to be paying special attention to Andrew Cuomo. We all know that former Vice President Joe Biden, who is now the assumed nominee for the Democratic Party, appears to be in dwindling condition by the day. He can't finish his sentences. It's almost become a cliche to say that at this point. And he doesn't look to be in great shape. I can't really imagine him debating President Trump in the fall. And I starting, I'm starting to wonder if even the liberal establishment, now that they've successfully defeated Senator Bernie Sanders, is now going to start thinking seriously about the fact that their candidate is a little too weak. And I don't want to rule anything out. I'd also, I'm not making a prediction, but I wouldn't rule out a scenario in which somehow they managed to draft an individual such as Andrew Cuomo, who's now emerged as the main Democratic opponent to Donald Trump in order to take on the party's nomination, which is why it will be so important to have all those statistics you just mentioned, Randy, on hand to combat his rise. He'll certainly pursue national politics. Oh, I know him so well. I know him so well. I hope the gray zone, I hope gray zone, gets into him because he's been given a free ride by these uh, daily, these daily, he's, they're giving his him brother. This is the thing, his brother. I think he's given more interviews to his brother, Chris Cuomo, the anchor, primetime anchor at CNN than anybody else. Is that normal? Should we it's just think beyond nepotism. Possible? It exactly. is beyond nepotism. It really is. Uh, and, um, you know, I call him dumber and dumber <laughs> together politically. I think I know which one is dumber. Yeah, you know, look, I'm Italian, so I can say this. It's the, the Fredo brothers. <laughs> I, I call them the Fredo brothers. And I'm, I don't want to, listen, I, I hope that he gets better. I don't wish anything, any harm on, on Chris Cuomo. He's, he seems like he's pulled out of this. But his brother, I can tell you, I did an interview with uh, a French magazine that it's coming out tomorrow where I really lay bare the facts on Andrew Cuomo. If people only knew, he's totally controlled by corporate interests. Uh, he gets money from the Koch brothers. He gets uh, money from Madison Square Garden. He gets money from uh, Bl uh, Lloyd Blankfein. Uh, he gets money from uh, Hollywood elites. If you take a look at the people, uh, Langone is one of his big contributors. So, uh, and these guys don't get taxed. If you take a look at Andrew Cuomo, beh behind the veil that you see right now, these daily briefings, which are infomercials for his political future. That's all they are because they're not stopping. 
They're not stopping anything. And, mm -hmm. and the media is playing it every day. Why not play a press conference from a, from a, um, a governor in Utah or from California, Newsom, or, or from, uh, from Michigan? It's him every single day. They're grooming him because we know that uh, this guy is not going to last. He's like William Henry Harrison, who died after like three days in office. I'm talking about Biden. Biden, yeah, exactly. Um, let me just get back to uh, uh, Julian Assange. Um, first of all, I, I, I really, uh, a lot of gratitude uh, that uh, I have, a lot of other uh, people of conscience have uh, over the work of the Grey Zone. You, uh, Max Blumenthal, uh, Ben Norton, who's in Nicaragua right now, and Aaron Mate, who I interviewed the other day for 40 minutes. Uh, now I have all four of you. Uh, you know, I got the four aces. Uh, now on this show. I wanted you on the show when you uh, hosted that uh, event in, in Queens back uh, on February 15th, but you got here a little late, uh, but uh, now we had some more time here. And it's uh, it's been great. Can you just, um, some closing thoughts about the contribution uh, that Julian Assange has made uh, and his legacy uh, in terms of journalism. It's exactly as former President Zelaya of Honduras said, Julian Assange is someone who will in the future, without a doubt, I believe if you and I and everyone else, people of conscience, as you described, do our job in documenting the history and the trial and the persecution and the criminal standard, which has been lowered to a new bar by the actions of the Trump administration and their attack, on the free press and particularly Julian Assange. Julian Assange will be regarded as a prophet if we do our job in telling that story. And I hope that we can even go a step further and see him free one day soon, though it just seems more and more likely so, or unlikely sometimes due to the behavior of, of the British courts. It's really, they should be ashamed. They're not, as they're running around running this Brexit campaign claiming to be a sovereign country, they're now bowing down to the will of the United States in the most disgusting and pathetic way. Wow, that's a good line. I'm going to use that. I'm stealing that from you. <laughs> I'm going to say that's that's good. That is Boris the, Johnson, the banner Mr. line. Mr. That's the banner line for this program. What you just said, you know, that they're trying to be a sovereign state with Brexit, and yet they are a vassal state to the United States, basically. There is no independent UK. They could prove it by freeing Julian Assange. And the people of the UK, the common people of the entire world will respect the decision of the United Kingdom to protect this individual who has not committed any crime, who has done nothing other than provide a service to all of us. And I hope, I know, because I'm one of them, will inspire many, many people in generations to come to take up the profession of journalism and carry on that legacy of n not bowing to power and acting as stenographers for power, but by fighting power and standing up to it. Though I don't think many people could be as brave as Assange and people like him and Manning in, at this moment. They're really true uh, beacons of integrity 
and someone we sh people people we should all look up to. Well, uh, I'm not going to try to follow that. Uh, those are the closing words. Um, Anya Parampil, who you can get on Twitter. Anya Parampil, that's it. And uh, you can find her on Facebook, and you can find uh, her work at Gray Zone News. Is it the Gray Zone Project? Is that where they go? Gray Zone News or Gray Zone Project? They're just the Gray Zone just the gray zone.com. All right. Um, and keep up the good work. You're an inspiration. And thank you for all that you do and have done and will continue to do. Thank you, Anya. You too, Randy. Thank you so much for inviting me. Happy Good Friday, as the president would say. Okay. I, I'm not even going to do it. <laughs> Praise to joy, the God descended, daughter of Elysium. Ray of mirth and rapture blended, Goddess, to thy shrine we come. By thy magic is united, What stern custom parted white. All mankind are brothers plighted, Where thy gentle wings abide. Freude, schöne Götterfunken, Tochter aus Elysium. Wir betreten Feuertrunken, himmlische dein Heiligtum. Deiner Zauber binden wieder, was die Mutter streng geteilt. Alle Menschen werden Brüder, wo dein sanfter Fliegel weilt. Okay, that was uh, the late great uh, Paul Robeson, Ode to Joy. Uh, music by Beethoven, lyrics by Schiller. This is Randy Credico, Randy Credico Live on the Fly. Assange Countdown to Freedom. We are uh, going to play uh, an excerpt of an interview I did uh, a couple of days ago with uh, Sergio Kiernan, an editor at Pahina Dose, uh, the very progressive daily out of Buenos Aires. And uh, he's also an investigative journalist and a, an author. Great guy. Uh, we asked him about Julian Assange and uh, he gave us this response. Well, you, you, you remember the very large dump of WikiLeaks documents uh, years ago and uh, the Snowden cache that uh, was so huge that it was divided among newspapers worldwide. Uh, I mean, if there were so many documents that not, no single team or publication could handle such volume, literally millions of pages. So they were divided by country, so to speak, and selected newspapers in every country got their parcel, you know. And we were one that got the parcel on Argentina, discovering things like uh, our then president, Mr. McCree, had this extensive network of offshore accounts all over the Caribbean and, you know, in all these fiscal paradise places. And, you know, so we were very much in communication with Assange before and after that cash. 
and we published an unending series of revelations about Argentina, including papers going way back in time, uh, what, what, who here went all the time to the U.S. Embassy asking the American government to, you know, help to topple the government of the Kirchners, which was very progressive at the time. So, <coughs> who provided intelligence to the U.S. Embassy? There was a bunch of people whose political careers were ended here, basically, because of those revelations. Part of the... Of the, the cables by WikiLeaks. The cables yeah, right, because, you know, uh, what we got from, from Assange and his team were things like the reports that diplomats sent to Washington uh, after meeting with a prominent political figure here as they do in every country. I mean, you go talk to a diplomat. Um, the diplomat has the duty to report that meeting. So they make a, a note, a page or two, explaining who this person is, what he came for, mm -hmm. and what was discussed during the interview. That was a mother load of information about people uh, middling political figures here uh, whose political careers were very much ended by that revelation. So Assange did a great service to this country and I'm sure to many others by revealing, uh, you know, the, the names of these conspirators. Right. Well, I was told by Alyssa, Alicia Castro that he's, he's adored there, not... Uh, uh, just by the journalists, but by uh, the Madres de Plaza de Mayo, they really appreciate what uh, Julian Assange has provided. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but uh, that depends on your politics. Not all journalists are, you know, like... Well, not, not, I'm not talking about Clarín uh, Nación. I'm talking about real journalists that are not on the take, not uh, okay, well, yes, controlled. I'm talking about real journalists like yourself. Uh, that work at your your paper and other places. There are other journalists. There are radio journalists there as well, and television. Some television journalists, but you know what I mean. Of course, La Nacion. But she, but he, but but he has widespread support. Uh, and yeah, what, was way, feeling, what was the feeling? He, he has something that's not very often remarked. He has credibility and respect because the papers that we get from WikiLeaks. Well, we don't take at face value. You know, we are careful. We check the information. We read, we go to other sources, we try to confirm. And systematically, the information is good. I see. So, um, we, well, he's never released, or WikiLeaks has never released anything that's been contradicted or proven to be false. Uh, it's 100% accurate. Can you say that about any other uh, media organ that's a hundred percent has that kind of uh, percentage of accuracy not off the top of my head no I can't yeah well I'll give you about three weeks and come back and let me know okay, um, we'll do. what was what was your feeling and what was the papers feeling uh, there when Assange was expelled uh, last year uh, almost and I think about three weeks from now it's almost been a year and being dragged out of there uh, by the British uh, Metropolitan Police. What was 
What was the emotional effect down there? What did you think for as a journalist? It was a terrible loss for us. And, you know, we were furious. I mean, uh, our edition that day and the following day was quite emotional, really. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, I haven't met Assange personally ever, like you have. But, you know, uh, I believe that man is an idealist. Um, and he's doing, you know, he was trying to build uh, a system by which governments could not think they would be able to keep certain secrets. And uh, that, I believe, is for our common good. So seeing Lenin Moreno tossing him out of the embassy, of, of the only safe haven he had, and the bloody British police dragging him to jail on these flimsy charges uh, was really infuriating for us. I just wanted to ask you what, uh, to, as a journalist, what kind of contribution uh, to the world and the future of journalism uh, has Julian Assange uh, heretofore uh, contributed? Well, I, <clears throat> first, uh, I think Julian Assange has a very peculiar role that I believe history will remember. He's the first global whistle blower. He is the man who came up with uh, a safe system for uh, whistleblowers worldwide to be able to, to disseminate secrets, terrible secrets that governments keep. <clears throat> you know, now it was mostly American secrets, but you know, in the future, I'm sure that Assange or other people like Assange are going to come up with Chinese documents and Russian documents and Nigerian documents and Brazilian documents. I expect that we, not in the far future, we're going to learn a lot about people like Duterte in the Philippines, uh, who is a terrible dictator and a bloody person. So we'll get to know a lot about it. And, you know, it's going to be that kind of uh, global, international whistleblowing. It's going to become a fact of life for all of us, for us journalists and for governments. And that's very important. That's a limit to the powers of governments. And so he's definitely has inspired that. Uh, and that has been uh, a huge role that he's played. And uh, I hopefully others can find a way to model the system that he developed and give people a vehicle uh, to disseminate the information that they have. Uh, Sergio Kiernan, how do people um, uh, reach you uh, at the paper at Pajina Dose? Yes, uh, it would be Pagina, P-A-G-I-N-A, -A, the number 12.com.ar. Pagina Dosi or 12.com.ar. Okay, Sergio Kiernan, uh, we'll be right back with Ray McGovern. Stranger, with every move he makes, 
takes Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow Secret agent man Secret agent man They've given you a number And taken away your name Beware of pretty faces that you find Pretty face can hide an evil mind Ah, be careful what you say Or you give yourself away Odds are you won't live to see tomorrow Secret Asian man Secret Asian man They've given you a number And taken away your Okay, that was Johnny Rivers, Secret Agent Man. This is Randy Credico, Randy Credico Live on FY. This is Julian Assange's Countdown to Freedom, episode 14. Um, I introduced Ray in our uh, previous segment, gave you his entire rundown. So you now know who Ray McGovern is. Ray McGovern has not, he was actually on the very first Assange Countdown to Freedom, or second, way back in 2017. He is no stranger to Randy Critical Live on the Fly, uh, but we haven't uh, spoken to him in a couple of years. Ray, it really is a pleasure to have you back. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I got to tell you, Ray, that article that you wrote last night uh, in Consortium News, what an epic piece. I mean, it is riveting from top to bottom. It's a tome, you know, but you cover everything there that you need to know about what's happening to Julian Assange. Uh, how long did it take you to write that? Well, it took a couple of days because I needed to check with my friends uh, who answered the question about what if, namely, what if Julian Assange and WikiLeaks were available before 9-11? What if uh, WikiLeaks was open and running before the unfounded unnecessary tragic attack on Iraq in March of 2003. What if uh, people really appreciated how much WikiLeaks could be used now with the COVID-19 uh, ha. In other words, WikiLeaks uh, founded a, a new method. I called it right off the bat, the fifth estate because rather than the fourth estate being controlled by, by the corporate people who own them, this was free. And this was an easy, secure, unaccountable, anonymous way for people to give documents. You know, it's WikiLeaks, it's not WikiHacks or anything like that. These were leaked documents. And we had Bradley Manning, Chelsea Manning, of course. And then we had uh, all kinds of others, most notably, uh, we had Ed Snowden, who didn't uh, actually use WikiLeaks, but was saved by WikiLeaks. This story not many people know. When Ed got, when Ed Snowden went to Hong Kong, uh, he said, he said, you know, this would be it for me. Uh, the CIA station is right down the road there. They're gonna come get me, but I need to tell the American people that they're being spied on, that, that we're in, in the verge of what he called turnkey tyranny. Now, what happened? Well, Julian Assange called all his chips, uh, called in all his chips from the Far East, uh, got uh, Sarah Harrison to do 
to do the uh, kind of arrangements. And well, lo and behold, Ed is free to the degree one can be free in Moscow or in the surroundings. And that's pretty free. It's a lot freer than in Belmarsh prison or in other high security prisons. So what I'm saying here is among the many things that uh, uh, they, that is the, the powers that be the empire really, hate Julian Assange for is the fact that he was responsible for calling in all his chips and his friends in Hong Kong. And by some miracle, despite all the, the tight security, he got him on, on that plane, which is headed to Cuba, of course, stopped in Moscow. He deprived of his citizenship at Snowden. He's there now. I've seen him there a couple of times. He's uh, as happy as one can be as an expatriate. And he's able to do a lot of good work. And it's all due, it's all thanks to Julian. Let me just give you a little vignette here. A uh, couple of times ago, the last, not the last time, but maybe next to the last time I saw Julian, I said, you know, Julian, I, I really respect you. I, I admire what you're doing. You've got proverbial guts and you're smart as hell. But you know, the thing I admire most, and the thing that many people know about is that you got Ed Snowden at Hong Kong. Yeah, now, you know, it really is remarkable. It's like a Scarlet Pepper Mill story or a um, Rick, it, Rick Blaine and Casablanca getting, uh, getting uh, you know, those two out. What were their names in Casablanca? Uh, Victor yeah. Laszlo and Mrs. Victor La Ilza out of Casablanca. The way he did that her was friend. remarkable. Don't forget you know? her name. <laughs> I can't remember her name. It's uh, Bergman. Bergman. Yes, but that—that's—that's that's really it's remarkable that he was able. You know who did that as well? Garibaldi, uh, after the fall of the uh, the Roman uh, democracy, the Roman Republic that he and Mazzini set up in uh, 1849 lasted two months. He got out of there when the Austrian and French troops descended through friends all the way back up to Piedmont and then uh, into exile into the U.S. So right. it was, it's one of those kind of stories. Uh, yeah, let me just to finish up there because you're quite right, Randy. Uh, the, the interesting thing for me was, as I'm with Julian, and I said this very simple thing, uh, in essence, you know, thanks for getting it out of there. He jumped off the, you know, you know, Julian is at the kind that'd be jumping around, but he jumped off the couch and he said, Ray, yes, yes. We had to make it possible for one person to do the leaks and not end up where Chelsea Manning is or where, what I said, where I am now, Belmarsh. We had to make it possible that one person who did this deed would escape. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I said, wow, you know, too bad people. Well, a lot of people do know that. It was mentioned in one of the films that was done, but uh, Julian doesn't brag about that. That's one of the marks that I admire about him. He doesn't brag. And of course, uh, the, the, the system, the government, the, uh, the empire hates him around for, for that as well as other infractions, as they would put it. Right, right. So um, if, if Snowden had not gotten out of there, he would be either executed or possibly uh, the rest of his life inside that uh, maximum security prison, Supermax in Colorado, uh, at the very least, uh, most likely, wouldn't you say? Well, that's a, that's a sure thing. And that, of course, is what awaits Julian if the virus doesn't get him first. And that's the saddest thing of all. I titled this piece that uh, appears uh, to, uh, to, uh, to appears in uh, Consortium News published yesterday, uh, I just, you know, Assange's life hangs by a thread. 
Yeah. One of the one of his co detainees or co prisoners has already died from COVID nineteen. It looks like another one did as well. I mean, it's a petri dish for this kind of thing, and uh, the uh, you know the, the cog in the machine. Her name is Vanessa Baraitza, the so called judge. You know, she reminds me so much of a fellow that we read about today. Some of us, uh, the high priest Caiaphas. Yes, I read that's in the story that you wrote today. It's, it's an incredible piece. Would you uh, remind us who Caliphus was well, and how it relates to this trial? <laughs> yeah, he was a high priest. He was a flunky, and he profited from the Roman system, sort of a satrap, sort of a, you know, a vassal, like Baritza, like, like the people in, in London, the so-called judiciary. Uh, they had something to defend. It was not the nation. It was the system. And so, you know, going back to Henry the the Second, for God's sake, when he said to his knights, "Will someone rid me of this troublesome, public, pr troublesome priest?" He was talking about uh, Thomas More, of course. And of course, the five knights uh, crossed the the English Channel and did uh, Thomas More in in a pretty bloody way with their swords. Well, now we have uh, uh, King Boris uh, and King Trump. Uh, saying, will someone rid us of this troublesome publisher? And of course, the someone would be this flunky judge who, like Caiaphas, who wanted to preserve all the, all the perquisites, said, and I quote, don't you understand that it's far best for the system that one man die rather than we risk all our privileges? That's, That's the cool. privileges of the nobility or the high priests or the 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 nobles of Rome. collaborators with the system collaborators with the empire and of course there was a whole slew of jewish uh, uh, rabbis i guess what, what you call them in those days high priests who uh, profited from all this stuff and the, the little people did not so uh, there's a direct parallel there and of course we're reading this this week about all this uh, those of us who are christians and some some of us who are jews as well and uh, it just it's just all came into bar relief. They're defending the system. They have these uh, collaborators that will do it. And as long as the system remains intact, well, people like Julian Assange, well, it's better that just one person die rather than risk the system's privileges. That's how bad it is. Well, at the top of the show, Ray, as you were listening uh, on the phone uh, or by Zoom, um, I, uh, you heard that uh, Bill Pastiche from Disturbing the Universe, the great documentary by um, Emily and Sarah Kunstler of their father post, uh, uh, post uh, Chicago 7 trial where everyone was convicted. And he just started riffing about the legal system and how the legal system is completely rigged and they go through it anyway. Is he getting, is he getting one of those that Bill was talking about in, in that piece that I played earlier? Well, you know, Bill is, is right off the, he's right on the mark. My dad was a lawyer. He taught law for years, 30 years at Fordham Law School. He was devoted and he loved the law. And toward the end of his life, he was, was outraged. He was so saddened at what had happened to his profession. And of course, he didn't leave, even live until the real indignities of, uh, of the Iraq invasion. Uh, the law has been jettisoned. I mean, you could go back to 1648, uh, the Treaty of Westphalia, uh, 
uh, you know, they, they decided then that 30 years of uh, killing each other, not really a good idea. And so let's do this little treaty where we'll, you know, we'll create boundaries and, and we won't kill each other, but sort of live in the boundaries, okay? Now, how many years, how many millennia or how many decades, or centuries is that? And yet the George Bush said, no, no, I think we'll do a war of choice here and we'll blame it on non-existent weapons of mass destruction and we'll get lawyers to, to justify torture. My God, you know, I'm almost glad that my, my dad died before he had to witness all this because like, like other lawyers who, who felt really strongly about justice, not legalisms, uh, he would have been destroyed. So, um, um, so in, in this trial, there's this farcical trial, there's Kafka-esque, he is Joseph K., uh, actually played uh, a, a little piece of uh, Anthony Perkins as Joseph K. in the, uh, um, who was it, who did it, um, Orson Welles uh, movie, The Trial, uh, back in 63. Uh, he's in that kind of a role right now. They're, they're going through it. They're giving him a trial uh, just to make it look like we gave him everything that was due to him. Is that how you look at it? Like Cus well, said, all of these trials, these political trials throughout history? Well, yes, Randy, with one important nuance. Uh, these, these people, notably Judge uh, Vanessa Baraitza, are making no bones about uh, just using uh, brute force against a prisoner here, the prisoner being Julian Assange. Uh, in other words, it's so bad she denying every reasonable motion, some of the motions uh, accepted and defended by, by the prosecutors. She's, she's making it so bad, no doubt under instructions, so that, well, so that everyone will be intimidated. In other words, the lesson to be learned from this is, this is what happens. This is what happens if you do what Julian Assange does. And we're doing this to one man, better than one man should die, then the whole structure collapse and you could be the next man. So watch it. This is how brutal we are. This is how savage we could be. Forget about the Magna Carta. That was 800 years ago. And I can see. I see you talk about the Magna Carta, uh, Magna, Magna Carta uh, in, in this piece. In fact, you, you, uh, you, you quote uh, Shakespeare, Lady Macbeth. Uh, incorporate <laughs> that into this discussion here, where you go back to the Magna Carta, uh, King John, and then you got Lady Macbeth. <laughs> well, uh, there are two illusions here. King John, of course, was in power when those British nobles, that is English nobles, in other words, there were nobles around 800 years ago, and they said, look, we should wrest some civil rights like habeas corpus from this King John. He was not all that, all that kingly, all that powerful, and they did, okay? Now, fast forward 800 years, what do we have? Well, I think we have those same English nobles rolling around in their graves and saying, my God, what, a, what has happened to the courage that we had when we stood up to the empire, to the king? And of course, the king in this case is the United States who wants to make an example of Julian Assange. Now, the, the uh, Lady Macbeth illusion had to do with this Lady Baritza, who, uh, you know, if she's lucky, uh, as bad as she is, Julian will die of the virus in prison and she will be able to retain whatever self-respect or, or, or uh, claim to self-respect she has. 
and it won't have to wash, keep washing your hands. Remember that from Macbeth, uh, how Lady Macbeth, after the murder of her husband, had to keep washing her hands. What they even call it a Lady Macbeth complex these days, and especially these days with COVID-19. So that was the illusion there. Uh, Breitzer is really bad news, but uh, deliberately so. And even the prosecution, even the American lawyers that are trying to get Assange are often siding with the defense and saying, well, you know, this is a reasonable request. Let him out from that cage you put in. Like, defer it. You don't have to do it May 18th. Why does it have to be May 18th? Well, because I say so, says Breitzer. The lesson is clear. He's really autocratic, Ray. I, I watched I watched uh, three days of the proceedings there, and I she told me to sit down one time. I'm up there standing. She says, "Sit down in the gallery." Uh, so she's rather imperious uh, in every respect. But if to see him in that cage, uh, and it looked like one of those Egyptian trials where you have people sitting in a cage, right? Or or Turkish trial, and, and other countries have the same kind of getup set up and 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 seeing her behind her glass cage and then all of the lawyers and a few reporters in the middle then you have the prosecutors behind the prosecutors are three guys from the united states all these young guys they look like they were shoe salesmen at kenny's you know <laughs> same same kind of outfits uh, the, the the cuffs barely got past their ankle uh and they're wearing these rayon suits uh and they had rayon uh, kind of personalities <laughs> hey, those suits come with two pair of pants, Randy. Don't knock it. So <laughs> synthetic, these guys. And, you know, you'd see them. They were going into the lunch hall there at the courthouse, sitting amongst everybody else and, like, not feeling any guilt whatsoever. Uh, are they driven by ideology? Are they just driven by survival instinct? This is the only kind of gig they can get? Uh, or uh, they... Are they getting instructions that they're following um, uh, unwittingly or uh, without much passion? Well, you know, they're cogs in the system. But to suggest that bright people like this, despite their apparel, couldn't find another job, that persuades me that uh, they're true believers as well. And they're probably well vetted to make sure that they can be instruments of the empire. They can be cogs in the system. You know, they're, they're being told, for example, Randy, in, in uh, metaphorical terms, look, we have to scare the bejesus out of people who would follow Julian's example. Now, two, two millennia ago, we would put crosses up on a roadside, right? And I would crucify one or two people a, a week. So people, that was a real deterrent. Well, right now, what we need is to create that kind of deterrent. And our behavior in this court, with the good help of Judge Baritza, is going to create that deterrent. That's what it's all about. Intimidation. Uh, the, the web is available. It's still available to people who want to, weak, to leak to WikiLeaks. It's an amazing confluence of events. They can't turn it off completely, but they're doing the best they can to intimidate people and say, look, you do this, you end up like Julian. And, you know, the rest of the world, particularly uh, countries that are tied into uh, to the U.S., uh, NATO countries, they don't want, and, and now our, our vassal states in South America, you know, uh, Bolivia now, and uh, Ecuador, uh, and uh, Brazil, uh, they certainly don't want uh, Julian Assange out there operating, and they're not going to make a, a, a huge fuss over this uh, persecution slash prosecution. 
Well, one of the sad things, uh, Randy, is how the New York Times, I mean, just take the Times. Now, back in 1971, the Times rose to the occasion because Daniel Ellsberg, using that Xerox machine as they wore it out, uh, gave them the documents for the Pentagon Papers. They were pulling their hair out. Will Nixon crucify us, <laughs> literally speaking, uh, if we publish this? And their lawyer, their chief lawyer said, look, there's a First Amendment here, go with it. Now, they did, but there's one other element here. Hans Ellsberg was really smart. Dan told me, look, we gave it to other newspapers. We gave it to the competitors of the New York Times. And Max Frankel, who was the managing director in those days, admitted at the New York Times uh, big, big soiree they had. He said, look, you know, yeah, it was courageous, but, uh, you know, there was competition here. And if those other newspapers hadn't been given this, well, we were kind of forced to do it uh, unless we'd be scooped. So, so what we have here is, is Ellsberg had a Xerox machine. It was cumbersome. It took forever. And he had to distribute it to various newspapers with the help of some really good friends, some, some of whom you and I are good friends with. Uh, but, but WikiLeaks has this open Dropbox where anybody can electronically send something. And that causes real headaches for the oppression, for the people who want to make sure that the rest of us don't know what's going on. And the proof positive is in what, what Julian Assange revealed about Afghanistan, Iraq. And one thing that is not often mentioned, I just mentioned briefly, the State Department cables were extremely revealing. If you go back to February 1st, 2008, when the talk was, we'll bring Ukraine into NATO, right? Um, Lavrov, the foreign secretary, he was just new foreign secretary then, uh, he called uh, our ambassador and he says, Mr. Mr. Burns, um, do you know what NET means? Burns, <laughs> well, boy, I did so. He said, well, NET means NET. No Ukraine into NATO. You got that? Yeah, okay. So Burns very, uh, very religiously transcribes this, sent back to Washington and said, look, there's a red line here. The Russians are saying no. They're saying NET, NET, NET to allowing Ukraine into NATO. Two months later, a NATO summit in Bucharest, Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO formal final declaration. So what do we learn from that? Well, we learned that it should have come as no, no surprise at all, that when we managed a coup in Kiev, while Putin was in Sochi at the Winter Olympics, when he came back, he said, look, this is crazy. Uh, there may be some uh, some fascists that have taken over in Kiev, but we're not going to let them take Sevastopol, our main naval port, which is the only ice-free one we have. NATO is not going to get that. And so you know what happened with Crimea being folded back into Russia. But I thought this was all about democracy, our love of democracy. <laughs> wasn't, that, wasn't that what it was all about, Ray? Seriously, that's a, you know you're. That's what almost, I heard. You're almost as old as I am, Randy. So yeah, that's what we thought it was all about. Democracy. <laughs> yeah, of course. We're love. We love democracy, especially in Guatemala and uh, and in Chile and uh, in Iran and uh, other uh, places. Numerous places. Too many to and and in Zaire or the old Congo. Um, 
We're talking with Ray McGovern here. Ray McGovern, I want to talk a little bit about the award, your, your organization, uh, the Sam Adams uh, organization, uh, and the Sam Adams Award, and the Sam Adams Dinner that you had, in which Julian Assange received that prestigious, prestigious, prestigious award. I hope that is edited out, that prestigious way I couldn't say prestigious. It was a prodigious mispronunciation. So uh, tell us about that, Ray. Well, really, this is a wonderful movement. It hardly can be called a, a, an organization, but it does have a website. It's Sam Adams Award, well, one word, dot ch, secure in Switzerland, okay? Sam Adams Award dot ch. Now, um, our most recent recipient, was Jeffrey Sterling, and that's where we got together most recently on the 15th of January, and it's a wonderful, wonderful event. I haven't felt well since. <laughs> well, you, that's the last story. time I take the mega bus coming back at three o'clock in the morning, but that's a long story <laughs> in and of itself. All right, so Sam Adams was about, a colleague, about Sam Sterling. Was a colleague of mine at CIA, and his task was to count um, Count communist troops under arms in South Vietnam. General Westmoreland was saying he killed so many every week that there could only be 199,000. Got it? 199,000. Sam found out that there were between 400 and 500,000. What did that mean? Well, that meant that we're losing. We were losing the war, not winning it. And long story short, uh, Sam proved this. Every intelligence agency except the U.S. Army under Westmoreland agreed to it. But our head, Richard Helms, head of the CIA, bowed to the Army and said to Sam, look, Sam, your figures are right. Um, but, you know, my job is to protect the agency. And I can't protect the agency by getting into a pissing match with the U.S. Army at war. So we'll go with Westmoreland's figures. Two months later, all hell breaks loose in South Vietnam, and 500,000, not 199,000 troops uh, almost destroy the country, raiding every hamlet, village, and city in South Vietnam. So uh, Sam never got to first base with his real analysis, and he died prematurely. Uh, just with terrible grief that he didn't go to the press. That in that you won't believe this, but in those days you could go to the New York Times and they wouldn't check with Washington before they published something. Now, of course, they do. So he lived with great remorse that he didn't that he stayed in the system. He went to the IG and so forth. If he had gone to the New York Times in those days, there's a good chance that he could have shown them documents. I I knew of uh, one where where General Abrams, uh, the deputy to Westmoreland, said specifically, we can't go with the real numbers because the press in Saigon would have a field day. They'd have a field day. And we can't, we can't uh, risk that at this delicate point of the war. So anyhow, Sam Adams was that kind of person. We decided to honor him. Colleen Rowley of the FBI was the first recipient. Julian was the 10th. And that was in 2010. Tell me a story about that, how uh, he received that award from our good friend, Craig Murray. <laughs> it was a terrific story. Uh, we decided to give it to, to Julian, but how could we get it to him? Well, he was still a free man in those days, and he held this wonderful, wonderful conference where he explained 
the Afghanistan uh, emails and the Iraq logs. And um, Craig Murray and Dan Ellsberg was invited to be there. So this was the chance. Now, I remember calling Craig Murray about three in the morning uh, his time saying, Craig, look, uh, we have this uh, citation. Did you answer on the first call? Was it? He answered right I away. Could, yeah, that, that was very unusual. He said, hey, if McGovern's calling me at three in the morning, <laughs> maybe I'll answer it, okay? Uh, so Craig uh, answered it and he said, sure, send me that citation. And uh, I said, can you, can you let, we give a candlestick holder for shining light into dark places. That's, that's our uh, trophy or that's our Oscar, okay? I said, would you please grab yours, Craig? Craig won it three years previous. And could you give it to Julian? We'll, we'll make it up to you. We'll give you another one. So what did he do at the end of this wonderful press conference? That Dan Ellsberg said, now, Ambassador Murray has an award. One last thing. Uh, in summary, uh, the contribution that uh, Julian Assange has made uh, in, the, uh, in the world, in the field of journalism. Well, it's unique. And it's so threatening to the powers that be, what we call the empire, what we call the people who have been ruling partly because the people they rule have been undernourished on accurate information. The reason they want to get rid of them, the reason now I'm sure they're hoping he'll catch this virus is because he was a real threat to that system. The threat's not going to go away. I hope Julian survives, but even if he doesn't, it's up to us. And Randy, you're doing a good job at it. All right, Ray McGovern, you've done a great job all of your life. Thank you for your contribution. Once again, uh, if you get an opportunity, uh, folks, I mean, afford yourself the opportunity to go to a Consortium News and read this. I got it right here. Of course, you can't see this on radio, but uh, it's 15 page. When I printed it out, Wonderful. It is right up there. It's as long as a Dickens or Dickens or a Tolstoy novel, but it's well worth it. It's a page turner and you go through every, it's poetic too. And all of the literary references and the historical references in there, uh, Ray, shows that you really put a lot of time into this. And I salute you for doing that. You've been a good friend of Julian Massange and uh, we'll see you at the uh, next Sam Adams award dinner, but six feet apart. Okay. Thank you, Randy. All right. Bye-bye. Ray McGovern, the great Ray McGovern. Thank you very much.
Paul Robeson, Going Home, uh, music by Dvorak. Well, that will just about wrap it up, folks. It was a long show, but it's a very important day. One year ago, Assange snatched and grabbed and thrown away into Balmorish, and they locked him up and threw away the key. We'll be on this, folks. We're going to continue this. If you'd like to support us, uh, please do. Uh, Go to our website, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Just spell it out, .com, and uh, there's something there. There's some kind of PayPal uh, button you can push. Uh, Small donations. We we really want to continue this all the way through, and we do have some expenses. Um, I want to thank Anonymous Scandinavia for putting those uh, sound files together. I want to thank Kelly Lane for who engineered this out of North Carolina, and Jimmy Sunderland, uh, who's editing this show now, uh, who's in Lake Arrowhead, California. I want to thank Sarah Kunstler, uh, who uh, runs the website, and uh, the old one and the new one coming up, and uh, Margaret Ratner Kunstler for uh, putting together show descriptions. Uh, there's so many. And I want to thank Bianca, who sat next to me uh, this entire episode. Uh, we'll see you uh, soon, folks. And um, here is uh, once again Paul Robeson and John Brown's Buck.
sol. 